The Talkin' Golf Network is proudly supported by the Golf Society. The Golf Society is founded on the belief that the latest golf trends, fashion and concepts shouldn't be compromised, but shared with every golfer. Shop online at www.thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash golf. I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrews, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 29 of the Talking Golf History podcast, the history of Seth Rayner with special guest Anthony Piapi. Today's podcast is a very special one for me because I personally love the designs of Charles Blair McDonald and his protege, Seth Rayner. These two men literally changed the look of golf in America and gave us some of the greatest golf courses ever built. Courses like the National Golf Links of America, the Lido Club, Chicago Golf Club, Fisher's Island, Piping Rock, Shore Acres, Mountain Lake, Yeamans Hall, the golf course at Yale, Camargo, and many more. For a period of only 13 years, these two men delivered some of the most indelible golf designs this planet has ever seen. And yet one half of the story has been left untold, the story of Seth Rayner. Today I'm joined by the executive director of the Seth Rayner Society. And over the next two episodes, we will do our best to put the pieces together for you. Before I introduce my guest today, if you love the podcast, I ask for you to share it with others. Our growth over the first year has been amazing, and I want to thank each and every one of you for taking the time to listen to our show. Now more about our guest. Anthony Piapi is the author of The Finest Nines, North America's Best Nine-Hole Golf Courses. He's also an author of To the Nines and the history of the Minicata Club golf course. And finally, Shore Acres, the first 100 years, 1916 to 2016. Anthony was also the co-author of Haunted Golf. Anthony is also the host of the Renovation Report podcast on turfnet.com. He has also written for the following publications, the USGA website, Golf Course Architecture, Superintendent Magazine, Lynx, Golf Punk, the Chicago Tribune, and Golf Week. Finally, Anthony Piapi is the executive director of the Seth Rayner Society and an overseas member of the St. Andrews Golf Club in Scotland. Anthony Piapi, thank you so much for joining us on the Talking Golf History Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Anthony, let's start off with the obvious question. I almost start every podcast like this. Um, what set you upon the path of Seth Rayner? 
I, I was really lucky. I played, I live in Middletown, Connecticut, and I used to play at a municipal golf course in Meriden, Connecticut called Hunter. And uh, it's an awful Alzo chorus design. And the pro there knew the pro at Fisher's Island. And every year he would take a group of people out, like sometimes eight of us. And we take the ferry out and play Fisher's Island. And I got to play it twice and fell in love with, you know, the, the, obviously the setting and the, and the views and all that. And then I got to play Yale. I live about 30 minutes from Yale and there was a Nike tour event there. And I was a sports writer at the time. And I went down for a media day or two media days and played Yale on that. Growing up in Massachusetts, we're not we're not talking about Rainer, you know, where I where I came from in central Massachusetts. We were talking about Donald Ross and, and some other people, mostly Donald Ross. And so seeing those two kind of got me interested in it. And then as my career shifted and I started to and I got into writing about golf courses for what was called Superintendent News. It doesn't exist anymore. It was a sister publication of Golf Week. Um, I was able to play some more Seth Rainer golf courses and just fell in love with them. Yeah, I I had the uh, lucky opportunity to play Fishers uh, two years ago, and you know I always have a tough time ranking golf courses, uh, you know, because there's the beauty aspect, there's the architecture, there's strategic elements, but sure, that course, man, it has affected me ever since. Like, it, I I don't know, I, I honestly, you know, I played a lot of great courses, but I don't know if it's the best I've ever played, but it's probably the most I mean, if you can use the word spiritual experience I've ever had where it just felt like every hole, every turn, every view, every green was just like a gut punch in beauty. Yeah, there's there's not the, the only thing I think that you would come across, in my opinion, that's a little weak is the second hole, the, the Redan Green, which isn't yeah. the original one. Yeah, that was lost in the hurricane of 38, which means Banks didn't build it either, build it, build it back because he's dead at that point. And they have no, no, but other than that, I mean, and it's not an awful green. It's not an awful Redan. It's just not great. But the course is amazing. I, in another stroke of luck, I get to be friends with Donnie Beck, who's the superintendent of Fisher's Island. And in 2006, 2007, and 2010, I would go out and caddy there on weekends. So I've seen that golf course in every imaginable weather condition and wind, wind uh, direction, um, seen it early in the morning, seen it late in the afternoon. And, and I, I continually learn something every time I'm on that golf course. I see a shot or a, or a movement in green or in the greens or an angle that I didn't see before. And it, it's quite a golf course. I, I don't want to rank them either. People ask me to talk about Rainer golf courses and my favorite and what's the best. And I would never do that, but it's, it's an incredible experience and it's an incredible golf course. If it was inland, it would still be a great golf course, but the views just make it, like you said, I, when I caddied there and I and I had this line, when members would bring out guests, I would say, just put away the scorecard. This is not about this. You need to look at what's going on. You need to see the views. There's, there's, if you don't play the golf course, if you only play the golf course once, you don't realize how there's a lot of great views when you turn around and look back. Absolutely. Because there's so many great views in front of you. And so you get people on tees and make them look back or you make them come and stand and see a spot from you know, a, different, a different area. And it's it's quite the place. I mean, every time I go, I'm I'm overwhelmed. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up. I I did not realize that about uh, the Redan, and and I left. I remember playing the Redan and going, huh, you know, like it's second hole in. The first hole is a great hole, but the second one, I was just kind of like, I I didn't know that story that it was wiped out. But yeah. now that you say that, it makes complete sense. It was the one question mark 
was, gosh, I've seen so many great Redans. This was just like a level below those. And I, and I think, if I remember correctly, the way that that was determined was Donnie Beck, the superintendent, either read about or saw a photo in the Hurricane of 38 that the beach, the beach club was in the pond in front of the, in front of the green. And the only way it's getting to the green is to go through the green. Interesting. And I tell you, for folks, I mean, I wish you all the opportunity to get on Fisher's Island because if there's one amazing, magical experience, it has to be the Alps hole when you're climbing that hill <laughs> and you, you reach the, crescent, the, the crescendo and you look down at the punch bowl. It is like it's a magical experience, isn't it? And how many photos you've seen of the punch bowl and how many great photos you've seen of it. Yeah. All these guys out there with their drone shots now and all that. But you have no idea until you get there because the hole isn't big. It's, it's a shortish kind, a medium length par four. And the hill is just so little. And you come, well, from the fairway, it's little. Looking back at the green, it's huge. When you come over that, it's just stunning. And on a clear day, you're also looking past it out onto Long Island. And you can see Long Island from there, so. Oh, it's crazy. So um, you're a part of the, the Seth Rayner Society. Give me a little bit of the history of the Seth Rayner Society, okay. and then give me an idea of what does it do, what is its purpose, et cetera. Right. Um, it was founded by Doug Stein and King Emig, who were the two people, they were, they were Lookout uh, Mountain members, who were responsible for Lookout Mountain being restored. Um, they're the ones who, who hired Brian Silver to come in and do the work. And they, Doug especially, fell so in love with Rainer, they went and looked at some other Rainer golf courses and McDonald golf courses before the restoration began, that he and some other investors built built Black Creek, which is what Doug wanted to be. I think he's said more than once, Rainer on steroids. It's a it's a Brian Silva golf course with a lot of the familiar holes and uh, strategies that we know from, from Rainer. So they founded that. And somewhere along the line, I don't know if I had written about Yale or Rainer, we ended up someplace together. I don't even know where it was. It might have been the lookout opening. And they talked about forming this organization and asked me if I was interested in helping them with it. And I absolutely was. And they were the, uh, they were the, pres- the co-presidents and I was the executive director. And it went along uh, very well for a while. And then things happened and Doug got busy and, um, and King uh, passed away unexpectedly. And it kind of went, I would kind of hit pause for a couple of years and then I revived it about, this is 2020, so I guess about five or six years ago, I revived it, um, got in touch with a lot of the old members with the, uh, w- I had always been in touch with a, with a bunch of them, uh, who, um, and we revived it, got, got a nice response from a lot of the clubs, and uh, where we have the biggest enrollment that, we, that we've ever had. I, I don't want to quote numbers, but. We have something like, you know, 12 clubs. So that means four people per club. And then we're well over 120 people, which is good when you realize how many, how few trainer courses there I'll are. Have them out there. Right. And we'll take banks. You know, we'd love to get them. We've had events at, at Charles Banks course and, and uh, we'd get to a, we'll get to a McDonald course at that point too. And what we try to do is we have, we try to have two, two day outings a year and, and we don't, it's, we, we want to try to get to the good part of the seasons or whatever the courses were, but the courses dictate when we – the host courses dictate when, when we have the events. So sometime they're in May. We've had them as early as May, and we've had them as we – were, we were at Mountain Lake in December this year. And uh, we try to get to – if it's an area of the country where we think we can get to two courses at one time, then we'll play two courses. You know, we'll do – we did look out in Black Creek, which a lot of people – people were um, 
loved loved Lookout and Black Creek. We also had a kind of a uh, a third day at Sweetens Cove because it's so close. So I wanted people to get to that. And then with with Mountain Lake because there's nothing else around that's really rain or a banks. We um, we did two days at Mountain Lake. Now before anybody says there's no rain around, I know Lake Wales Country Club. It's a Seth Rayner, but and it and it's it's a wonderful golf course. If you didn't know, it's Seth Rayner. The whole quarters are really massive. There's some very nice greens, but the problem is, is that you know it's a Seth Rayner, and you could see you you get a feeling of what might have been there. But I played it this year for the first time before the Mountain Lake event. Oh, you did? So, oh, yeah. Good. yeah. And I had a blast. I'm really glad we went. I know they think they're a Donald Ross. Ah, uh, kills me. Kills me. Yeah, I we have. Give, I gave them information. I, I think their yeah. eyes are blind to it, or they just yeah, don't, they don't care. Well, they don't. They don't know who Seth Rayner is, so they don't know the cachet. Yeah, I, I mean, I tried to convince them. Like, listen, I'm a I'm a Donald Ross fan. I, I just did yeah, two yeah, podcasts yeah. on Donald Ross, but I'm like, yeah. Seth Rayner is is just rare. Like, it's right. just a different level of rarity. Like, there are hundreds of Donald Rosses, and we'll get into how many Seth Rayners there are later. But it's just such a rarity. To embrace it and have it public would be amazing for well, golf. And, it's, and it started off public. It was a yes, of course. And and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna when I talk about some of the findings and stuff, I'm gonna refer to a we because I do a lot of research with two other guys, Brett Lawrence, who lives in Connecticut and is a very good player, and and Nigel Islam, who lives in in I believe in Indiana. I've never met him, but he's the guy that we put together the the what what is now the 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 the, the best list of Rainer golf courses. And, and we're working on a timeline where we have links to just my, like the Charles Blair McDonald timeline. We'll have links to newspaper articles or references to club histories for every movement we have of, oh, of Rainer. Fantastic. But yeah. what we've discovered is there's a connection, which we always thought there was. There's a connection between Lake Wales Country Club and Mountain Lake. And one of the connections is one of the founders of, of Mountain Lake sold the land back to Lake Wales. that he, he had bought land, sold it to Lake Wales at cost. And it was worth much more at that time um, than what he paid for it, so they could build a golf course. And there's no, we haven't found, we haven't found the, the the definitive proof, but it's highly unlikely that a small town like Lake Wales is going to employ Seth Rayner. So we think that those guys paid for him. And Rayner wasn't down at Mountain Lake at the time. Mountain Lake was already built. Um, the, the back nine at the back nine at Lake Wales opens in '26, uh, like the week Rayner dies. So, so Mountain Lake's first nine had opened in 17 and the back, this is in the middle of World War One. So the, so their first nine holes, which was one through six and 16 through 18 opened in 17 and the second nine holes opened in 21 and Rainers at Lake Wales, if construction starts, maybe 24. Yeah, maybe 24 because the back front nine or the first nine opens in 25. Second night at 26. Somebody paid for him to go down there. We don't think he was on, you know, there's no other jobs that we know of in that area that we've ever found him associated with. So we think he was just down there for that. And we have newspaper articles with him on site. So, or he's been on site. So we know, we, we know definitively that's his golf course. And the Donald Ross, and the Donald Ross Society has said that too. Like they've taken it off their list. Yes. We yes. Found all, so nothing we found in the Tufts archives. There's nothing. There's no connection whatsoever that I've found or, or any that I know of have found. Right. And, the, and what's made it, what's happened was, is for however the information got disseminated incorrectly, when all these papers, all these papers now that are being uh, digitized, we're finding stuff that people never had access to unless they sat down. You know, we have a lot of Tampa Tribune articles. Unless you went to a library with the Tampa Tribune on microfilm, 
with this idea that Rainer built this golf course. You're never going to find this. And now we just do search on it and all this stuff pops up. You know, I like to think that the whole Donald Ross um, idea at um, Lake Wales kind of stems from something very simple. Uh, essentially, you know, uh, Rainer comes in, he designs the course, uh, 18 holes is finished in 26 and Rainer's dead. You can just imagine five years pass, six years pass. Rainer, you know, as we'll get into later, didn't write. He didn't write books. He wasn't uh, prolific in the press. And you can just imagine, this is me just imagining this really more than anything is, you know, who designed our course? Oh, some famous architect, you know? And they're like, oh, it must have been Donald Ross. Yeah, Donald Ross. That's, you know, and it just... It yeah, continues. the other problem is the other problem is, he, and I, I'm blanking on the name. He designed a course in the area he did, of Lake just Wales north, that I never believe. that never got built, if I remember correctly. Yeah, you can see still see the outline. I, I don't remember the name of the course, but I believe it's just north of there, right up by yeah. the, the lake. Right, and then the other thing that happens is the, a part of, if not all of the course, goes fallow. It looks like it during World War II, and the back nine gets it, we think was like redone by a superintendent. Or somebody like that, and a lot of the features were lost. So if you think it's a Seth Rainer golf course, and you get out into this—I don't know if it's the back nine or this area away from the clubhouse—it's—it loses its feel, and that's—and that's part of it. Like you're not seeing Seth Rainer there. And when they built the parking lot, who knows when they—they—they, they, you know, they buried the—they buried the Bierets, they added another hole, and you know, so it's kind of—it's incremental how this happens. But somewhere along the line, Ross's name got added. And everybody bought into it, and that's the way it goes. You know, what I mean, and and this isn't the only no. It's this a theme. The only uh, uh, example of that. Yeah, it's a theme. I think it's just in history. Um, you know, bef- you know, we 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 live in this modern times where we can research things through periodicals, and and you and I know this just because it's a periodical without finding a second source, it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. But prior to modern times, that written that the spoken word just got passed on and passed on. And it was almost right. like uh, a game of telephone where it just becomes something completely else. It's the, it's, you know, I have an article in, Mc, in McKellar magazine, this issue about clubs that lost their history and how easy that is and, and it, how easy it turns out that that could happen. And places like Dedham, Dedham country and Polo didn't know they were Seth Rayner. And when you walk over and look at the 17th green, which is this spectacular reverse Redan, how, how can you not? You know, and, and I mean, it gets to the point, I, I think people need to understand, if you don't care about golf history, who your architect doesn't matter. So the name, the fact the name gets lost doesn't matter to a lot of people. It's, it's, you know, there, there are homes in the town where I live in the town I grew up that are on the national register of historic places. And I don't think that anybody who lives in the, what percentage of people who lives in those, live in those homes know that or care who built it or designed it. You know what I mean? And so, so we, we get kind of lost. We get kind of angry at that, and I do get angry, you know, obviously, about stuff like that. But Shore Acres brought Jeffrey Cornish into the in the 1980s to have him determine who designed their golf course because wow. they didn't know. Wow, that's amazing, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And and around the 50th anniversary of Chicago Golf Club, H.J. Uh, Wiggum was still alive, and the guy who was in a head, a head, the head of one of the committees wrote to Wiggum because McDonald is dead, and asked about the design history of, of Chicago and what he, I've seen the letter and he said, what he said was, is we understand that Seth Rayner, when he redesigned the golf course, traveled to uh, the UK to look at the best holes that there were and came back and implemented those here. 
They had lost what? the whole history of it. And we, and that's 50 years after Chicago Golf Club, the, the second one. Now, that's not the Wiggum we, saying that, is it? No, Wiggum's no, – Okay, he's cor- okay. thank Wiggum goodness. Because I'm like, he was part of National stuff. Golf Links in the early t- moments, so I can't imagine right. he'd get lost in that. Right, but the membership of, of had no what idea. was one of the most prestigious golf club and maybe that and Shinnecock at the same time, right? First 18 holes in the yeah. United States. They don't, know who, they don't know their design history, and they've confused part of the McDonald's story with Rainer's story. If it can happen, then it can happen anyway. Let's come back a little bit. Um, yep. You are, amongst many things, an author. Um, yes. Can you talk about some of the books you've written and then maybe the best way people can get a hold of them? Okay. Uh, the most recent book was called The Finest Nines, North America's Best Nine-Hole Golf Courses, and that came out in 2018. And I ranked the 25 best nine-hole golf courses in the, in the United States and Canada. Uh, I interviewed a lot of people, a lot of golf writers, a lot of architects, to come up with um, with the list, uh, and I like the list. I haven't got too many situations where people are losing their minds over what I have in the book and what I've left out. Um, and the book that got me on the on the road to doing that subject was a book called To the Nines, which originally came out I think in 2006, and uh, has been since was re released in 2013 or 14. And then the other book I co wrote with a friend of mine is called Haunted Golf. Um, which is ghost stories. We found ghost stories that revolve around golf courses. So it's part of the haunted series for this one publisher. So you can read about haunted love stories and haunted hotels. And we did that. All three of those books are available, um, uh, online, you know, Amazon. But if you wanted, if you want a uh, signed or personalized copy, you can always get in touch with me. And the easiest way is Anthony P. Oppie at Gmail. And I'd be happy to sell your book and, and sign it for you. I do have two other books that I wrote. Um, the History of the Minicata Club Golf Course. Uh, you can get that book at Minicata in the pro shop. I, I, don't, I have one copy left, so that's the only reason I'm not selling them to you. And I wrote The History of Shore Acres, and that was a very limited press run. And the club, uh, the president of the club does not want that book being sold to anybody. So uh, Tough luck, folks. A couple of, yeah. <laughs> I like the book, too. I'm sorry. Uh, other than a couple of architects that I knew were interested, I was able to get them copies. Uh, there's no way to get that book. I like the Minicata book a lot. They did a great job with the uh, with the design of it and the printing of it. And uh, some very cool roster. They have the hole by hole roster drawings, which they found prior to me writing the book. Uh, and it Minicata has a great history because it hosted a USAM uh, one by Bobby Jones, a US Open one by Chick Evans, a Walker Cup. That's uh, Curtis Minneapolis, Cup. correct? Yeah, and it's landlocked, so it will never host. It hosted a U.S. Senior Amateur a couple of years ago. It's never going to host a big event again because it can't. It can't expand. Um, it's landlocked and the, on three sides, and then the other side is Lake Calhoun. So if you if you, if folks at home get to play it, uh, Chick Evans won there in 1916, and he won there with seven clubs. Yes, so he did. you have to cut your set in half and try <laughs> to do the same thing. I think. I think. Yeah, and then the the course got lambasted in the national press for being too easy, and right after, and they had already hired Donald Ross to come in and um, uh, improve the course. At that point, it was a it was a Bendelo, uh, Tom Bendelow golf course. I feel like every club I mean, should Ross, have a chick. Ross made a career on redoing Bendelows, didn't he? <laughs> I mean, well, and in New England, and in New England, he redid uh, Styles and Van Cleek, and Styles and Van Cleek redid Ross. So you know, but yes, because Bendelow went in and and did these kind of rudimentary routings and you know, the game got better and the equipment got better and people wanted more and clubs had more money. 
you know, and so, um, so then Ross came in. and it's, it, what's really interesting about the Ross drawings is he shows all of most of, if not all of the Bendelow features. So we were able to come up with a, uh, a Bendelow routing of the golf course. Uh, Tim Garish, who's a golf architect in Rhode Island, um, sat down with the, with the whole by whole drawings or copies of them and, and just pulled out the, uh, the Bendelow uh, stuff. And so in the book, there's a, there's a drawing of what the Bendelow course would have looked like. Oh, that's stunning. Yeah, that's cool. I'm actually setting Anthony up here. Um, for those of you at home, I've been egging Anthony on to write a book about Seth Rayner. Uh, Anthony, perhaps this is a great way to kick off our conversation. Why are you too lazy to write this book? <laughs> now I'm joking, folks. That's all um, it is. It's just I'm joking. There's um, a lot of stuff out there. Yeah. I just Walk the listeners through the issues of writing a book on Seth Rayner. Okay. And they're numerous. Of all the people, all the, all the famous architects and some of the less famous architects of the golden age of architecture, 1910 to World War I, he didn't write at all. He never wrote a magazine article that we found. He's never written a newspaper article. We don't, we've never seen anything of, you know, a, a manuscript for a book. On top of that, uh, he was never, he was rarely interviewed. And when he was, he had very little to say. We've never found uh, an example of him expounding on his theories. There's an interesting article that appeared in the Olympic Club magazine um, in 1918 when he, uh, they had hired him to redesign one of their golf courses. He's quoted, and he talks about it a bit, but um, it, it, ironically, the course that he designed was never built. And there's some references to when Wiley opens. There's some kind of stuff about that. Um, there's a great Charles Banks article where he talks about what Rayner said, but even not a lot about that. So we don't, so we don't know Rayner's thoughts on design. We don't know, we don't know what he, when the light, light went on when he was with McDonald at National Golf Links of America and realized and, and understood golf architecture. I will argue that if you go to a Rainer golf course, invariably one of the best holes of the three best holes will be a Rainer design, not a, not a hole that's that a concept that he's repeated from other, from other golf courses. I think the seventh at Fisher's Island is fantastic. I think the, it's a, I'm trying to think of the number I played this year. The par, the first par five at Chicago is amazing. You know, the, the short, the short hole at Yeamans that actually has a, a thumbprint in it in the green. I mean, all of that kind of stuff. He comes up with these holes that are just absolutely fantastic. And the quest, like, we don't know, we don't know when, when, how this happened, just like we don't know how it happened with Banks, that he was this liaison with Hodgkiss to Rayner building a new nine hole golf course. And he leaves this beloved, uh, school that he went to and then came back and worked at and he leaves to join Rayner. Something happened with Banks as well. You know, Rayner had an engineer. He didn't have an engineering degree. He went to, he went to Princeton, right? Princeton for four years and never graduated, which is bizarre. Um, and he was a, he was a certified engineer. I mean, he had the CE after his name and, and, um, we, so we understand that part, right? We know, we know that he understood drainage. We know that he understood moving earth and, 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 and he was a landscape guy. He did some landscape architecture. So we understood that. But how he, what he sees during the construction of National that just lights a fire with him, we have no idea. So if you write the book about Rainer, I can tell you about the clubs that he belonged to in Southampton. And I can tell you where he went on vacation with his friends. And I can tell you 
about his wife and his wife's family and all that. But it doesn't make for an interesting book. And we have a few letters, say, from golf courses where he's riding back and forth with Mountain Lake. Or I have these great letters that I found. I didn't find them. Excuse me. The head golf professional found at New Haven Country Club in, in Connecticut where he was the consulting architect for three years. And there's handwritten letters back and forth. And and after World War One ends, they don't something happens and and Willie Park comes in and designs a golf course. They can't figure out what. But there's there's handwritten letters and we just don't know, but that's it. We don't have this window, this huge window into Rainer. Yeah. I, I think if you write the book, yeah, you write it from the perspective of the course. I yeah. have it I have a title for you Uh-oh. that you'll hate and love at the yeah. same time. Okay. A template for greatness. Because I know you love that <laughs> word template so much. <laughs> okay. All right. But if you think about right, the use on. of the word in that context, it yeah. works. All right. So anyway, uh, right. let's talk about uh, pre-Charles Blair McDonald, uh, Seth Rayner. Yeah. What do we know about Seth Rayner before he meets Charles Blair McDonald? Uh, he's born in Manorville, Long Island. He moves to Southampton. His dad was an engineer. His dad... Uh, worked on the expansion or the renovation of Shinnecock. And we know that Rainer was out there with him, as they say, carrying the chains. There's a quote in a South in a Southampton uh, magazine that talks about that from the day, a Southampton article from like the 1920s. Uh, he goes to, he goes, this is another one. He goes to a private prep school. He goes to Princeton prep, which no longer exists. And we're not sure where the money came from for that. He then takes two years off between uh, prep school and Princeton, I believe, because his, I'm guessing because it's when his dad died, so he probably came home. Then he goes to Princeton. He spends four years, like we say. We know he doesn't graduate. We've confirmed that with the university, but he's included in the class like list of people and what they do. And 25 years later, he's in the 25th reunion publication. Um, so we know that he's well liked by his class. He goes back to Southampton and he's in, he's an engineer and he works for he's in he does private stuff but he also does a lot of work for Southampton road work uh, drainage sewerage that kind of thing and then um, when McDonald goes to build National Golf Links for America the first thing he needs is somebody to survey the property and so he hires Rainer to make sure you know so they know where the boundaries are for their land and then he keeps Rainer on and I, my theory on this is that. Um, when McDonald's now going to construct a golf course, right? For the first time in the United States, somebody's going to build a golf course. So when he gets to the Redan, for instance, he shows the plans to Rayner and says, it's this big, it's this big, it's this long, this wide, this deep. How many cubic yards of soil is this and where do we get this? And Rayner says, okay, well, if we build the bunkers you have here, this is going to be X amount of soil. So now we're going to have to get soil from over here. And having his landscaper eye, We'll get the horses and drag plates and we'll bring this up, but we'll still make it look natural. And now you have this. Now you, and, and on top of it, remember, he's also draining. He, Rainer is, can drain because he's an engineer. He knows how to drain the property. So he's moving. He's creating these, these holes and these green complexes and these bunker complexes. You know, if you, dig these, if you dig a series of bunkers, what do you do with all this earth? Some of it's left around the bunkers, but what do you do with the rest of it? And Rainer says, okay – well, over here is, is another green. We'll use this to build this green. I, that's my theory. And, um, you know, I was interviewed for the National – when the National wrote their book a few years ago, I was interviewed about Rainer's role. And that's one of the things that, that we discussed and I've discussed with some of the historians is 
the, the, McDonald kept him for a reason. And I, and I think it was that it was the ability to get what he had on the drawings into the ground and, and make it look natural. You know, his path to golf design is, is one of the most unique, uh, I I'd say of the, of the golden age. You once wrote something to the effect that he wasn't of Scottish descent, nor was he a highly ranked professional or amateur. I mean, his path comes from engineer and yep. into protege into architect. Right. Um, fascinating, right. isn't it? Right. And right. And 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 Brian Silva was the one who pointed this out. Pointed this out to me. Banks did the same thing, right? Banks doesn't. Ba- Banks was a was a natural athlete at Hodgkiss and at Yale. And he didn't play golf on the golf team. He golfed, but he, he played baseball and he played football and he played track. But as Brian said, those guys got the concept. Somehow Rayner understood what McDonald was, was imparting on him. And it banks the same thing. And we can go through the history of golf architecture from, from 1910 to right now to 2020. And you can think of way more architects who worked for great architects who didn't grasp the concept. And went on to a career, and here you have Banks and Mc, Banks and, and Rayner coming right from McDonald, who absolutely get it to the point where not only do they build these, they re- repeat or use these concepts. They can design when they get to a spot of land where something doesn't, something that they know doesn't fit. They can design a great golf hole. Yeah, let's let's jump into this. Uh, Charles Blair McDonald crosses path with Rayner, right? He hires yep. him uh, yep. essentially as an engineer. For yep. his game-changing work on National Golf Links of America. Yeah. Now, before we dive into Mr. Rayner on that and, and his part, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about uh, Charles Blair's ideas. Now, Rayner's first golf design engineering job just happens to be one of the most important golf designs in the history of golf in America. Right. What made National Golf Links of America a game-changer in America? Well, this it was you know his goal, McDonald's McDonald's goal was to create a, a world class golf course, and and he thought the best way to do that was to was to I, 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 people talk about copying, and I hate that word, but to use the concepts of the great golf holes of of the British Isles and one in Europe, and that's the Biarritz in France, that came from the Biarritz Hotel Golf Course, and that which is no longer there. And he understood that there were these great concepts and these holes were great because of certain features, you know, alternate routes to get to the to get to the green um, risk and reward uh, large greens with undulation. So putting from one day to the next or from one side to the other wasn't uh, mundane or or uh, boring. And, And when he creates he he succeeds in his goal. In in part because he has good people around him. I mean, he has Devereaux Emmett and Walter Travis with him, and he he had a falling out with Travis later. But you know, Travis got it too, and Devereaux Emmett got it. You go to Devereaux Emmett golf courses, you know, and, and Emmett Emmett went over there and did some went over to the British Isles and did this um, measuring of some of these golf holes. You know, what, how big was the Redan, for instance? Or he went to Prestwick and took holes from there, and you know, all that all that. So he he understood the concept as well. So there's those guys there. You know, and 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 McDonald firmly understood what made a good golf hole, and he and he wasn't afraid to tweak either. You know, the Redan at National is not a copy of the Redan at North Berwick, right? And and that's the point that I think people miss 
with national, and I think it's a point they miss with McDonald and Rainer Golf Courses. None of these are copies. Yeah, well, it, no maybe piece. walk through the folks that that aren't aware of. Well, let's go two ways here. Uh, one, if you could describe, and I know it's tough, but describe the landscape of golf course architecture pre National Golf Links of America. Like the, the design was a lot different than what we experienced in the golden age, which we could argue was kicked off by Charles Blair McDonald and Seth Rainer's work. What existed prior? What were we coming from for him to just change that dynamic? Yeah, it was rudimentary. It was, you know, holes were straight away. Uh, The hazards were right in front of you so that you, you had to carry, they were heroic. You know, you had to go over uh, a a mound, uh, an unnatural mound or a line of mounds or a, a, a man-made ridge to get to a green. The greens were flat. Uh, the bunkers, if there were bunkers, didn't have much feel to them. They were just, you know, the, uh, or artistry to them. They had, they were just holes dug in the ground. Um, there was no preferred sides on on golf holes. Part of this is due to the fact that on a couple of occasions, the game itself exploded and people needed to build golf courses quickly. And when they did, you know, they, they there weren't people, there weren't a whole lot of people around building golf courses that had a clue of what great architecture was. Tom Bendelow was one of them, but again, he was building quickly, you know, as all those guys were, because, you know, they talk about when, um, when Varden came over, they were building golf courses just for him to play on in the, in, in his tour, because they wanted him to stop in town. So you had to build a golf course for Varden. Yeah. And that's and 1900, so, right? I mean, that's right. unbelievable. Right. And these are, and, and, you know, so, so the game, the game is expanding in the early 1900s. And nobody had no, so few people had been to Scotland or, or been to the British Isles to know what a real golf course was. And if they had gone, they were extremely wealthy. The only guys that knew were the pros, you know, the lucky people like McDonald and Wiggum. But there were also people coming, the, the Scottish pros and the English pros and Irish pros that were coming here were, um, they had the better idea of what the golf courses were like. But they weren't architects. A lot of them hadn't played many golf courses. So, you know, they just, they built something that they built something quickly so people could play. And initially people were satisfied with that. That was enough for them. You know, I mean, you look at the, you can find the newspaper or the magazine article of Newport Country Club for the original, for the, you know, the official U.S. Amateur and then the U.S. Open, you know, there's stone walls and that they're playing over. Yeah, I always tell people it's it's more of a, a vertical game. And I don't mean by like carrying the ball. It's you have your hazards are. What's a good way to put this? They are convex, not concave. So now we think of yeah. concave bunkers. Here we have this, for better word, mounding, dirt mounds in the middle, or you'll see a flat bunker that's level with the turf, and then a mound that is three feet high right behind it to create a lip that you need to go over. Rather than going deep, they go vertical. Right. It's it, it was it was it was like steeplechase. It was like a steeplechase. Yeah, you're that's going, a great you're way going to put over. It. You're going over bushes and you were going over briar patches and, you know, blueberry thickets and stone walls and, you know, created mounds. It was really that. It was kind of this, yeah, it was steeplechase. And then McDonald comes along and changes everything. Changes everything. And the thing that really um, takes me back is that uh, McDonald and a lot of his peers on both sides uh, of the Atlantic are kind of mocking him on the idea that you can recreate the, we're going to say the strategy of a Redan or a strategy of a road hole or the strategy of an Eden on a foreign piece of ground. And, and oh yeah. People, right. They, just, oh, right they thought the, it was yeah. a farce. They thought it was a joke 
that he oh, was yeah, even going to attempt. Oh yeah, the British to... press, the British press, the, these offhanded comments because he he discussed it before he had even purchased the land. He discussed the concept, and this was his aim, and he was trying to find you know the right spot to do it and all that. And and yeah, he was abs- absolutely mocked. Uh, well, I mean, to, but by not everybody. Some people thought it was a good idea. Or, hey, this is a good try, or we're interested to see this. But there was a lot of people that just kind of. You know, that makes no sense to them. Yeah. And for the novice out there, the, for the person who's, you know, a, a non-golf course architecture person, uh, you might hear this and say, big deal. You know, they copied some famous holes at Royal Links in Las Vegas. This is not the same thing. Right. <laughs> this is, uh, it's looking at the strategy of the greatest holes in the world at that time anyway, and finding ways to, to work with the land that is present on that course and using those strategies to recreate that design. So right. as you said, the Redan doesn't look like it. There's the Ravan, there's the reverse Redan. There's right. all these different elements. Some beer at right. screens have the swale in the middle. Some are in front. I just think just for those out there, I just want to let you know, it's, it's not like, you know, going to play a, I don't know, a copy of St. Andrews or something like that, that we, you know, might pull off somewhere here in Florida. Um, what is it about McDonald and Rainer courses that inspire people over a hundred years later? So we, we've got great design, Anthony. Yep. I mean, we, I mean, we have a lot of, you know, Oakmont, Pine Valley. We have some of the great golf courses here that are, uh, available obviously in the world too. What is it about these courses that inspire people so much later? Um, I can, I just want to speak for myself because I, I don't want to sound like I can, I can encapsulate what everybody's thinking, sure, but sure. for me is it's, it's, you have to, you have to think about every shot, right? It's, you hear designers referred to as their second shot architects. It's all about the approach shot into the green or the second shot and the third shot on a par five with Rainer and McDonald. It seems to me that everything matters all the time. And there's a pref- preferential route every time, depending on how far you hit the golf ball, how, what the temperature is, how far, which direction the wind's blowing where the flag is on the green, right? And, and there's and there's this and there's this uh, again, which which they they've always they always did, and which was a hallmark of of the golden age is that there's these alternate routes. Everybody can play the golf course. You know, you can. Uh, there's a the the third hole at Fisher's Island, downwind on a dry day. I want to say it's about three thirty. It might be drivable because the because there's no ferry irrigation on the third hole, so the ball runs forever. But but somebody playing the original first tee, I mean, I'm the original, an original tee, the original forward tee on that hole, can hit a drive of 50 yards to get to the fairway. They can turn sideways and hit it 50 yards to get to the fairway. And the guy who can hit the who can reach the green, maybe in a horrible bunker, a horrible place in a bunker, may have blown it right into the ocean, may have hooked it into the neighbor's yard, and the person who hits it 50 yards hits another 50 yard shot, hits it. You know, it keeps going and makes a six where the guy who could drive the green makes a nine or a seven or a six. And to me, that's and that's the appeal of their golf courses. And then when you get to the greens, there's always a lot going on. You know, if you go, for instance, if you think if you're a if you're a person who's played a McDonald, the Rainer hole, you think about an Eden green, which is which is copied from uh, the 11th at St. Andrews. Right. It's a par three. The one at Hodgkiss is a downhill Eden with a mound in the back left-hand corner, a huge mound. Oh, really? In the back I have not seen this hole. Right. And so, 
so you don't get to their Edens and think, oh, this reminds me, this is exactly what the Eden at Blue Mound is like. Do you know what I mean? No, 100%. I, I, I remember playing Fox, Fox Chapel. You can't even keep it on the green half the time because of the slope. <laughs> right. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm, whenever I play these golf courses, I'm constantly, uh, um, pleasantly surprised to, to see what what they've built into their greens the movements and the hogbacks and the little the little hollows and and these little knobs or these bigger knobs and so i think it's part of that and i and 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 they're to, to some people they're not visually pleasing because they feel that the green complexes are too geometric or too or overly constructed and i'm just not one of those people i like i like what they did when they when they move earth which they don't all the time. You know, that's, I think, a misconception. You go to a place like, you know, um, Yeaman's Hall or even even Fishers or Country Club of Charleston, there's not a whole lot of stuff that's moved between the greens and the tees. They dig some bunkers here and there, but they're not, they're not massaging fairways. They're not bulldozing or pushing stuff up. It's really at the beginning and at the end. And so I, I like what they do at the beginning and the end. I like their tee complexes. I really like their green complexes. Um, and, and I think that all adds up to me what, what's so visual that what's so appealing about their golf courses. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, for me, I think it's always nice to see a hole that's a little bit different. Like every Redan's just so different. Yes. You recognize it Yeah. and you know the strategy of it, whether it's a reverse or a regular Redan, but each one, the intricacies are just so unique that they all play differently. And right. to that point of like sculpting, um, I, I, I don't know. For me, it is, it's like watching um, or, or if it's possible to play in a, in a Picasso painting, that's what it feels like. <laughs> you know, you are, <laughs> I'm, I feel like you're, you're walking down the brushstrokes of a Rembrandt. That's interesting. And, and I think, too, that there's also – on their best golf courses, there's a lot of luck involved. You, can, you and I can be five feet away from each other on fairways have completely different lies. One could be a good lie and I might have just a slightly hanging lie. Or you, you know, we get to a green and I'm six feet right of you and my putt breaks a cup and your putt breaks three feet, three and a half feet from the left. You know what I mean? And it's this subtle break that's early on that leads to something else. And there's, there's all of that. I think you, you, you're highly – I find myself highly entertained when I play their golf courses. Uh, let me ask you this. In your opinion – did Seth Rayner make Charles Blair McDonald a better architect? And if so, how? Make him a better architect? Well, he wasn't an architect, right? He worked for he was a he was a teacher and a fundraiser for Hodgkiss. And so he made him an architect. How that happened, I have no idea. Because when you see McDonald, you know, he he finished up a number of Raiders golf courses. He finished, he was at Lookout, um, he was at Fisher's. Um, off the top of my head, Camargo, I, somebody else finished Southampton. Um, and then he goes on and his solo designs are just spectacular. Uh, uh um, Tamarack in, in Greenwich, Connecticut is just outstanding. Um, Annapolis roads looked like a, it's a crime that that nine holes were, were lost. That was originally supposed to be 18 that were never, the second nine wasn't built. But when you see what he did on his own, uh, I've been at the Cavalier, I'm trying to think of where else, I, what else. Whippoorwill is fantastic. He he was a, he was a hell of a designer. I mean, he really he he was more bold in his green designs than Rayner was, from what I've seen. He reminded me more of McDonald with his greens than than Rayner. But he 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 could do he could do the job. 
In, in 2019, I did a, a small story on the Lido Golf Club. I argued that perhaps no architect of that era or any that preceded it could have built Lido. Can you dive into Seth Rayner's genius at Lido? You know, that's a tough one for me because it, because it doesn't exist. You yeah, know what I mean? Absolutely. And we can look at it and we're not. It's, it's the same thing when you look at, at, at Dibson Island later on and the original 18 holes there. How much of that is McDonald? How much of that is Rayner? What's going on? But I mean, the, just the engineering feat. That's where I'm going. Of, I'm just yeah. saying literally from an engineering standpoint, taking no land and low land. Yeah, how many cubic yards of, of I think Earth? In our in our thing, I think uh, Jim Urbina said four million right. cubic yards. Right. And he takes that he takes that concept and he and he he also does that a bit at um Country Club of Fairfield, but the but I'm the fourteenth hole, the fairway of the fourteenth hole of Fisher's Island was was water. He made that. And I think he used the same procedure that he did at uh at Lido to do that. To, and and McDonald had this idea, and and Rainer went and got four million cubic yards of ocean bottom to make this golf course. I mean, that's insane. And they came up with this. I don't know who, if they did or somebody else, came up with this method of of dredging. You know, this sucking the stuff up off the and piping it out onto this property. It's insane. I, I mean, I think it might be. I mean, if you if you really compare it to the technologies available to the day to today versus back then. I think it's arguably the most amazing achievement from an engineering standpoint in the history of golf from an engineering I, standpoint. I mean, yeah, I mean, they literally took built- nothing and made a golf course. Now, interesting enough, I, I find this fascinating because if you're to believe the narrative and against once again, it's history is full of narratives and not all of them are true, but we're told that, um, I, it escapes me. The president of Piping Rock, who convinced um, Charles Blair McDonald to do Lido, come out of retirement essentially and do Lido. Um, I can't remember his name, but he basically said, hey, You have a blank canvas. Uh, right. You're going to build this thing out of the sea and you have as much land as you want. But oddly enough, the 18th hole finishes in the middle of the course. <laughs> if you think about it, it's in the middle of the course. You are. I know. Uh, 300 yards from the clubhouse. Right. It's one of the enduring like question marks I have. And of course it's, you know, it's, uh, Alistair McKenzie's, uh, Lido winning, uh, hold, uh, right. in, what is it? Country magazine, but unbelievable. It's like in the middle of the course, you have all the room you want. Right. And it's right. in the middle of the course. And I, you just sit there and you look right. You look back at some of this stuff. You look back at that, uh, that example and go, what were they thinking? And they were thinking something. He did it for a reason. Absolutely. Right. He wasn't leaving that 300 yards for parking. You know what I mean? It wasn't going to be a driving range. He did it for a reason. I don't think it was going to be a driving range. He's not going to finish the back of the driving range. No, range, I mean, to God. walk to the clubhouse, whether you walk to the hotel or the clubhouse, you are walking through a fairway or through a green. I, yeah. I mean, I've looked at yeah. it extensively. There's no way out of that little corner. Right. Maybe right. they, maybe he just jumped over the, uh, uh, the fourth hole and dove into the ocean. I don't know how they played <laughs> that. As I look at my painting above right. me here. Um, right. So – after five years under the arm of Charles Blair McDonald, Seth Rayner went out on his own. Do we know how he grew his design business? Do we, like, do we know if, you know, I, I, maybe there are some. I have not seen any advertising for, um, you know, Seth Rayner design. I have not seen that. You see that for everybody. I mean, Ross and Tillinghast, but nothing. Yeah. It's later on. It's not early in his career. I, I think, so... There's some baffling stuff about early in his career. One, how does he get to Musquamacute, right? He does five or six holes, 
over at Nisquamacate. If I remember correctly, they had bought some additional land. Um, help, help everybody in, out. Where is that at? Nisquamacate, I'm sorry, Nisquamacate's in Rhode Island. Uh, it's on the ocean. That is one of his first, maybe his first job, right? We have some other stuff early on. We got West North Hampton. Shore. And, yeah, I mean, I've heard West Hampton. But, right, and so then, so then people want to tell you that West Hampton was his first solo design, but the more digging around we do on that, we think H.H. Barker was there. I see stuff to me that looks a lot more like McDonald than it does Rayner. There's an article that says Rayner was involved, but there was there was a there was a, a member that was involved in the design. And then the real big question mark is is if you if you look read the West Hampton Club history in 1938, and I'm quoting, the golf course was destroyed. So we don't know what's left. I don't know uh, these people who claim that this is a Rayner, this is a pure Rayner original design. The club themselves said the golf course was destroyed. What does that mean? I mean, we don't really have good photos before and after, so we don't know what was there. I don't know what was lost, and I don't know who came back in and, and did the work because, again, Rainer, McDonald, and Banks are dead in 38, so I don't know who did the work. Um, we, know what, we know that he got the job at Blindbrook because they had originally hired – Blindbrook is in just over the Connecticut border in New York. A lot of people, this, a lot of people consider that this is considered one of his first early solo designs. I kind of argue that they, from the, their club history, they hired McDonald and McDonald decided he didn't want to do it. And he, so he handed it to Rainer, but Rainer didn't get the bunker, the golf course, um, uh, Finley Douglas, who had been, who had won a, who had won a U.S. amateur and was a member and was a great player and a local pro, uh, low. I don't want to get the, it's either, I think it's John Lowe or it's one of the lows. They they bunkered the golf course a year after it opened. They wanted to see how people played it first. So so that's that's Rainer. I, there's also a Rainer connection, uh, McDonald connection, Shore Acres. That's his old that's his old stomping ground, and uh, he came, McDonald came from Chicago. I'm sure they were interested in having him having him out there. Uh, Hobart Chatfield Taylor was one of the founding members. He and McDonald were, were big but were buddies, um, and and. Chatfield Taylor was a was a mover and shaker in the golf world. I think he was a founder of the Western Golf Association. He, they de- they definitely knew each other from the golf circles in Chicago. My guess is they wanted McDonald. The problem with Shore Acres history is that a clubhouse fire there was a clubhouse fire in the 1980s and they lost everything but six letters uh, about the founding of the golf course. Everything that I have in the book I found in newspaper articles and magazine articles. So any kind of correspondence early on. Um, of who they were reaching out to get, um, a, a guy by the name of Stanley Fields, the son of the founder of Fields Department Source, um, he was the guy that, that formulated the idea for Shore Acres. My guess is that there was communication with McDonald, and McDonald, this is not late 1916, early 1917, recommends Rainer. So at least two of those jobs are are right away uh, uh, that I, I can think of because of McDonald. I think West Hampton. I think West Hampton Shore Acres, um, West Hampton Shore Acres and Blindbrook are, are all directly related to McDonald. So from 1916 to 1926, yep. Seth Rayner was quite prolific in his design practice. In only ten years, he gives us Chicago Golf Club and and folks for you at home, the Chicago Golf Club you know today is a Seth Rayner. Uh, it is his design, uh, Fisher's Island, Shore Acres, Yale, Camargo, Fox Chapel, and many others. What stands out to you in those 10 years? I mean, well, that is, that's an amazing resume in one decade. Well, and let's make it even shorter than that. 
because he didn't do anything between 1917 or did very little between 1917 and 1919 because it was World War One. Everything stopped. The projects he was involved with stopped and no new projects came in. He was doing landscape architecture work at that point. Um, he designed the driveway to set to a child Blair's McDonald's house in uh, outside of national. Like I, I, we found some. Does it have a, like a Redan tilt to it? I think it's a, it's like a reverse, <laughs> reverse Redan. So right. there's a, right. No, and it was a famous, and it was interesting because there was a famous, when you read the history of the house, there's a famous person who did the flower gardens and all that, but Rainer did the driveway. Um, what stands out is that, uh, um, the pace at which he worked. Uh, he had no co-designers. He had construction engineers. He had guys that were on the job. We know that he had people working for more than one job for him. Um, but he, ne he never stopped. Um, this is the days of, you know, train travel. Um, you have to remember, as Brett Lawrence pointed out to me, when you went from New York to San Francisco, you went via Chicago, Omaha, and Sacramento on a train to get to San Francisco. And so he's, we have him on the West Coast at least five times. We have him in Bermuda a bunch of times between 1919 and 1924. He, he, some, he did an amazing amount of work in Bermuda. He was in, he was in Puerto Rico. Um, he was up and down the East Coast. You know, it's, he just, it, he was in, we have him in Hawaii. We know he was in Hawaii before he died, right before he died, late 1925. He just, once he got going, once things, once, once the war ended, 1919 and 1920, January of 1926, he's nonstop. Yeah, so you've studied him fairly intimately. What do you think were his greatest assets as an architect? I mean, you've seen a lot of his work. Uh, what stands out from his work that you've seen? I think just adapting, adapting sound golf course design to the, to the property. You know, not afraid to put uh, a leave and green uh, on a drop shot or a, da a downhill part three. You know, not afraid, not afraid to come up with a reverse Redan. The Redan was a part three. He puts it at the end of a part four. You know, um, not afraid to take to, to take this to take the the front portion to build a, a Bierit style golf hole without the front plateau. You know, he adapted as he went. Not not afraid to put mounding or or uh, thumbprints or knobs into green. You know, like a, a a thumbprint in a in a short hole green kind of thing. You know, not afraid to do that kind of stuff. Not a put, afraid to put spines in. Not afraid to uh, on on his his short holes are not are not redundant. A, a 140 yard par three surrounded by sand they're they're different he just adapted to the site and he adapted to to each project it was never it was never redundant and that's why i have a problem with the template word because they never used it and when you think of templates you think of i think of i have a, i'm going to call up a word document i'm going to go to my template file and get the word document i want because i want it exactly like this so let me, what do you call it then? Do you call it his, the ideal holes? I think that's how they may have referred to it. I'm trying to. Yeah, I just, I just, I concepts that they repeat. You know, yeah. the, the concept of the Eden hole is it's a par three. Uh, it's a par three of 165 to 175 yards. Um, McDonald believed this is one of the great, one of the great, I think, pieces of ephemera in golf architecture is McDonald thought the only weakness of the original Eden was that you could play it with a putter. And Mackenzie thought the greatest point of the of the Eden Hole was that you could play it with a putter. That's isn't that brilliant? Right. And so, so a lot of times, most times, Rayner follows McDonald and puts something in front of the Eden Green. 
puts a bunker in front of the green or there's this rocky weird outcropping at lookout mountain that they use and but that's to stop you using the putter but if you have a downhill hole that does that bunkers don't matter but he still puts them there do you know what i mean it's it's all that yeah it's just how and and rainer rainer was a visual architect there are bunkers that he puts in places that are purely for aesthetic reasons he wasn't he wasn't a scientist he wasn't in, in, you know what I mean? He wasn't an engineer in his place with bunkers. He's Rembrandt. He's creative. Did he have any patterns? I mean, I think you kind of touched that maybe he didn't, but did he have any, like, did he like to go a certain route where, you know, were there any patterns in his design? The, the way only, he used his ideal holes. Well, the only thing that, l- l- let me say this to start off with. I, I, my answer is no. And what's, And the perfect example of that is his opening holes. You can talk about his opening holes in some of these golf courses and their par fives and their easy par fours and they're they're not busting ones like the par four at Yale. So he's one of those guys where he didn't even have a concept of his first hole, right? It's going to change all the time. He's not walking you into – he's not easing you into your round every time. The only concept I've ever seen repeated, and I need to talk to a lot of architects about this who would know, is he seemed to cluster his par three greens. That he kind of went into, I don't know if he was going into difficult corners, and that's how he figured to get in and out. But if you look at the original Yale drawing, the Eden and the short hole are very close together. They're reversed. The, the, the short hole on the, re, on the Yale drawing is the Eden hole, and the Eden hole is the short hole. He kind of does that at Shore Acres. He goes into this area where there's some par threes together. Um, and I don't know why that is. I, I don't know the reason for that. I don't, I don't have a clue why he's doing that unless it's just his way of getting into a shop corner and getting out of it. That would be a great chapter in A Template for Greatness <laughs> by Anthony Piaffi. <laughs> yeah, I'm too lazy to write it. Though. Uh, that's um, right. I, I did say that. Yeah, I, I'm quoted. Yeah, I'm going to be right. quoted in every magazine now. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to quote you. Um, so, so I don't know what he's doing. I don't know why he's doing that, but he's doing it. I don't, and I don't think, it, for all I know, it could be random. You know what I mean? We, yeah. There's not that many golf courses of his left. There were never that many that he built anyway. So, to, you know, he's not Donald Ross with 300 golf courses. So, uh, but that's the only thing I've seen. I don't think he, he doesn't end courses, holes. He doesn't end the same way with the same concepts. It is not always a difficult hole to end. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. So th- I, to say a repeating pattern, I'm not sure that I, that I see anything. Yeah, let me ask you this, and I, I don't know the answer to this. I, I, yeah. I think I do, but I don't. Uh, is Seth Rayner ever has he has there ever been a time where he's been known to design a course without the use of those ideal holes? No, no. And the other thing we've, and this is we, the guys I researched with, we thought Metairie was the the standalone on this, but we've now confirmed Rayner at um, Metairie. So every golf course of his that he designed, that he was alive when it was being built, he visited. Interesting. Right. I, I'm actually going to get into Metairie later, but I, let's jump into it now. Uh, so there's confirmation, because that was actually one of the questions, is there are some questionable courses um, as to whether they should be on his design list. And Metairie yep. was one of them. Uh, Joseph yep. Bartholomew, obviously, right. is, the story was that he traveled to learn from Rainer. Right. Um, go into that a little bit, maybe, if you wouldn't mind. So, yeah, so uh, some people with connections, one of the guys with a connection back to Sitwell, the guy's last name, Sitwell, 
with connections to Southampton, somehow Rayner ended up in New Orleans. Um, the, the club wanted, I guess the club wanted Joe Bartholomew, who was a, a local African-American guy, to, 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 to be the construction superintendent. And so they sent him to spend a summer with Rayner. And he traveled with Rayner, um, saw what Rayner was doing that, those, that year, uh, and then took Rayner's plans. And, and Rayner went at one point, took Rayner's plans back to uh, uh, Metairie, Louisiana, and, and built the golf course. But we know Rayner was there. But he, he, he built it for him after learning the concepts from Rayner. But when you see the early aerials, there's some pretty wild stuff out there. There's the sinewy bunkers and fairway bunkers that definitely never appeared on any other Rayner golf course. Um, now, the aerials are from late 30s. Golf course opened in mid-20s. I don't know how much could have changed, but sure. I'm guessing those were Bartholomew bunkers. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, I think Brian Silva is doing a restoration there. He is. Brian, um, uh, Dave Marchand, their director of golf at the Seth Rainer Society meeting in our, our gathering in December announced that, that Brian's been hired to come back in. Um, they found some additional aerials and really go at it to put the golf, put, put the golf course um, much more Rainer than, than it is now. That's how they're describing it to me. Oh, that's great. I can't wait to see it. Can't wait to see it. Um, let, let's go to this. There, there are a few cases of courses where we know Rainer worked, but we n- might not know what he did. And I'm thinking of uh, his consulting work with Women's National Golf and Tennis, Newport Country Club in 1923, and there's talk that he did some work on the greens at Pebble Beach. What right. do we know of these projects? All right. So I have a list in front of me. Right. I have uh, I have a link on my. Um, I have a I have a blog on the the uh, the A position blog and yeah. we and I we posted oh, the list. Brett, yeah, Brett, love to Brett, hear this. yeah, so it's the A it's the A position. One of one of the categories we have is let me see if I can find this. Uh, is unknown work of Seth Rayner. All right. And so he we know that we know that he was at Hollywood uh, Golf Club in Deal, New Jersey. He was paid two hundred dollars and the club allocated twenty five hundred dollars to implement recommendations, and we have no idea what they were. But they brought somebody in the next year. At Newport, Rhode Island, they paid him a fee of $500 and expenses of $38.90. For, and this is a quote, for services rendered in connection with the golf course. We have no idea what he did. They have the receipt. Pebble Beach, work on an unknown number of greens, according to uh, a couple of newspaper articles. And at Women's National, he and McDonald consulted for Emmett. And we don't know what he did. It's just really bizarre. I, uh, the, the Hollywood one is interesting because it sounds like from the club history that that he did work. So he made alterations and whatever he did, a certain segment of the club just despised them. Oh, and, really? And I think somebody I, I want to say that might have been when Travis came in and did the work. And we don't know what that was. And and again, with Newport Country Club, I mean, he's not working in the area at the time. Uh, Ocean Links is, uh, I, I think if I get this right, Ocean Links is done. He hasn't started on Wanham Autonomy, which is close to the next town over from Newport. What's he doing? What's he doing in Newport, Rhode Island? At Newport Country Club, and we don't know. Yeah. I, I didn't even know he was attached to Newport Country Club until um, I had a conversation with Barclay Douglas, who brought it up, because we're talking about doing a uh, episode on the history of Newport Country Club for the 125th anniversary of the first U.S. Amateur and U.S. Open. And right. he brought that up to me, and I was just like, oh, 
He did. Yeah, and, Bar- and Barkley was a gr- Barkley was a great help with me when I was um, researching Ocean Links, which was the nine hole Rainer golf course where McDonald consulted that was that bordered Newport Country Club. And when you walk in the front door of Newport Country Club, there's the Putter Boy statue. That's the same one as at, at uh, Pinehurst. That used to be it at uh, Ocean Links. Oh, I did not know that. How about and, that? That's very yeah. cool. And T and T Suffern T Suffern Taylor. Taylor spelled T A I L E R. Um, is the guy who built Ocean Links because he felt the golf, the Newport golf course at the time needed to be upgraded. He was a Newport member, and he they didn't want to do anything to the golf course, so he embarrassed them or cajoled them by building a much better golf course next door. And they still play. There is still a T. Suffren Taylor Cup at Newport. And T. Suffren Taylor's son, Tommy Jr., was a fantastic amateur player. And if you look at the early days of uh, the Masters, he played in the Masters. He may, he may have had the amateur record for a while at Augusta National. We're going to end part one of the two-part podcast on the history of Seth Rayner here. Our next podcast will take off where we ended and jump into the modern conceptions of Seth Rayner, what to take away from restorations of his work, and how you too can play his beloved courses. I will end part one of the history of Seth Rayner, not with my words, but those of William Everett Hicks, written the day after Seth Rayner passed away. Mr. Rayner's ideas of golf course construction were always those of a philosopher who sought to reach the hidden springs of human action. To him, a course was more than a mere pleasure ground. It was something by which the better part of man, both physical and and moral could be developed. And he aimed not so much to render his courses difficult and technically beyond criticism as of a character that would make men delight to play them and thus draw them away from the stuffy atmosphere of offices, storerooms, and studies. You've just listened to the Talking Golf History podcast. Yours in golf history. This is Connor T. Lewis.